This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Fully vaccinated MPs returned to the House of Commons on Monday ahead of a new session of Parliament, the second minority mandate for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Monday was also the day we found out Ontario parents would be able to book their 5 to 11-year-old children for COVID vaccines the following morning, Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Many grandparents have chosen to physically stay away from their grandkids since they returned to in-person learning at school until the vaccines were offered. So this is a special time for extended families. While filling in for Libby on Monday, I spoke on both of these topics with our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. There's a lot of relief among our CARP members and their other older Canadian friends uh, right across the province and across the country. They've been waiting for this to be able to more comfortably get together with the uh, young people in their lives. You know, the, 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 dis- the disassociation, the distancing, the isolation that, uh, that seniors have felt uh, from their loved ones, especially uh, grandchildren, has one, been one of the, the huge results of, uh, of COVID over the last uh, uh, two years. And finally, there's a solid light. At the end of the tunnel, we know that the young people are going to be vaccinated. And once they've had their vaccine, we'll be able to get together with them uh, again. It's it's a milestone in the progress, be, be, be getting back to pre-COVID times. David Kravitz, uh, what are your thoughts as we get into this next phase? Well, I think it's a great thing. I share Bill's um, uh, reaction to it. I would point out, though, that... Um, there's a lot of um, individual decision-making that's going to be made by the parents of their grandchildren. I don't think there's a – I think we, we can't leave out that intermediary there. It's not just the grandparents and the grandchildren. Um, are there other health issues? In my, in my case, uh, there's an asthma worry with uh, – uh, that people are, you know, my, my daughter's looking at closely. So it's not going to be necessarily um, – one size fits on. I think that it will a lot will depend on the advice of the individual uh, pediatricians or doctors and uh, the decisions of the parents. Okay, gentlemen, David Kravitz and uh, Bill Van Gorder, the new session of Parliament begins today with most of the same MPs in their seats as before the September 20th federal election, as long as they are double vaccinated or have a medical exemption. What can we look forward to uh, for Zoomers? What what do you want to hear in the throne speech tomorrow? Today they elect a speaker. Tomorrow we hear the throne speech from Governor General Mary Simon. What's still on? done that needs to be done up. Bill, I'll start with you. Well, the huge issue with uh, with older Canadians is uh, uh, 
the the economy, the the rise in the cost of living, as we've talked to Jane on this program uh, many times over the last year, uh, older Canadians have faced uh, more pressure from increased costs than any other sector of the uh, population because they depended on so many things before that uh, came to the no cost donated or contributed or helped by family and friends and neighbors. Those things have gone. Uh, food costs have gone up, as everybody uh, knows, but that's a major part of, of the uh, expenses of any uh, uh, senior. So although health care and other issues are important, every time we survey our CART members from coast to coast, they tell us that cost of cost of living is the uh, is the biggest issue they they face, and they don't think the government has paid has paid or will pay enough attention to it. They they were very disappointed during the election uh, that it wasn't uh, a bigger issue, and frankly, the political parties and political leaders, none of them really seem to understand the situation, the financial situation that COVID has left seniors in this country. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Last Sunday was World Day of Remembrance for road traffic victims. And in Mississauga, the Civic Center clock tower was dimmed to honor those who've lost their lives, been injured, and had their lives forever changed by a road collision. There is a comprehensive effort in Mississauga to raise awareness about the impact collisions have on victims, their families, friends, and emergency services crews, and first responders. But there is still more to be done, not just in Mississauga, but across the GTHA. Joining me on Monday to discuss this ongoing issue, NDP MPP for University Rosedale, Jessica Bell, Albert Cole, road safety advocate, environmental lawyer and founder of Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition, and Pat Sato, Mississauga City Councillor for Ward 9 and Chair of Mississauga's Road Safety Committee. So we, we have a multi-pronged approach to our Vision Zero strategy. We uh, council approved the Vision Zero strategy in t- 2018, and we are using a mix of education, engineering, um, technology wherever we possibly can to make the roads safer for pedestrians and for motorists and cyclists as well. Uh, this past year, we this summer actually, uh, Council approved a motion I brought forward to extend our automated speed enforcement cameras to uh, 22 across the city. That gives us two for each ward in the city, and they're being employed in school zones. Uh, prior to that, we have reduced speed limits on all of our residential streets across the city. So, um, you know, if you're on a Crescent, a, uh, a drive, whatever, your speed has been reduced from 50 to 40 and to 30 
in all school zones that are on residential roads. That is excellent. That, that's what we need to be doing here in the city of Toronto. That, that, that's phenomenal. Albert Cole, I mean, when I hear about that, that all residential streets, uh, the speed limit has been reduced to 40. Uh, I'm sure you would agree that here in Toronto, if we could get that happening, that would make a huge difference. There are still so many residential streets that are 50 kilometers an hour. And that's fast, you know, on, on, a, on a street with homes and children and, and pedestrians. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, well, in fact, in Toronto, in the um, in the old city of Toronto in East York, all of the residential streets are at thirty kilometers an hour now, and 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 there's very strong popular support to, for that as well. And it's sort of I had to laugh when you said uh, uh, people want it on their own street. And I, I think that is the way it works. Like a lot of people will say, "Yeah, I want to drive fast on someone else's street, right. but on my street, I want people yeah. to drive slowly." Yeah, yeah. And people understand, right? I mean, if you drive faster. That's going to be a, a risk to you know the people that you love, that you know, your 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 family members. So people have come to understand that and to accept it. In fact, what I've really found encouraging is that at city council, when these things are debated, then all of a sudden a councillor will pop up and say, "I also want it for you know my local area." So 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 seeing councillors advocate and to speak for their own residents who want the lower speed limits uh, has been really a surprising result because that came, you know, that's very recent. In 2012, both the public health officer and the coroner recommended 30 and 40, 30 kilometers on residential, 40 on uh, arterials. And there was um, initially, uh, you know, a a backlash from some media and some councillors, but it turned out there was very strong uh, popular support. Joining the panel for now is Jessica Bell. She is the new Democrat MPP for the riding of University Rosedale and has proposed the Vulnerable Road Users Law, known as Bill 62. Jessica, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, give us a recap of what, of what you're trying to change provincially. On Wednesday, the Vulnerable Road Users Law will be going to a full vote and it will bring in, if it passes, tougher penalties for drivers who, while they are breaking the law, and injure or kill a pedestrian, cyclist or worker on the road. In other words, if a driver is breaking the road rules, texting, speeding, etc., and they injure or kill someone as a result of that, they will face tougher penalties. How likely is this to pass? I believe that road safety is a completely non-partisan issue. Mm-hmm. I think it is important that the Ontario government and all parties uh, take reasonable steps to make our roads safe, and this is a law that will make our roads safer. NDP MPP for University Rosedale, Jessica Bell, Albert Cole, road safety advocate, environmental lawyer, and founder of Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition, and Pat Sato, Mississauga City Councillor for Ward 9 and chair of Mississauga's Road Safety Committee. As a follow-up to the story, Jessica Bell's Bill 54, the Protecting Vulnerable Road Users Act, passed on Wednesday to second reading. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, optometrists resume OHIP-funded services after almost three months. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. Ontario residents received some good news on Monday. Optometrists paused their job action and after nearly three months are once again providing eye care to people 65 and older and those 18 and under as formal negotiations get underway. Optometrists withdrew the OHIP covered services because they say they have been dramatically underfunded by the provincial government for decades. They say an eye appointment is about $80, but they are only given 55% of that from the government. Before optometrists began withdrawing their OHIP-funded services, they were offered by Health Minister Christine Elliott $39 million in retroactive costs and an 8.5% increase going forward, but responded that that is not nearly enough. Representatives with both the Ontario Association of Optometrists and the Ministry of Health have told Fight Back there is a media blackout during negotiations, so they are unable to comment publicly. So Fight Back went to the opposition health critic to get more information. NDP MPP France Jelena joined me on Tuesday to talk about the developments and the history leading up to where we are today. Well, I can tell you that Way back in December of 2020, so that's almost a year ago, the optometrists made it really clear uh, that they needed a way, a formal way to negotiate with the Ontario government. They had taken a vote. The vote was over close to 95% of them voted in favor of job action if nothing happened by September 1st. Came September 1st, Nothing had happened. So they went ahead with their uh, job action, which is to refuse to see people who are covered by OHIP. And you've said in your intro, anybody over the age of 65, anybody under the age of 18, and there are a few people who are covered because of uh, different diseases. Mm -hmm. So if you were covered by OHIP, all of them refused to see you. And that went on for three months. I cannot tell you the amount of petitions that we have received from people who were not happy with this. Um, it started when, on September 1st, the kids went back to school. Yay, finally, you don't do school on Zoom anymore. You're back with your friends. You are looking at a, it's not a blackboard anymore, it's a whiteboard. And then you discover that your kids are not able to <laughs> read what's on the whiteboard right. in these glasses. And there was no way to get an eye exam for those people. Very soon after, a petition started coming in from people over the age of 65 who, for a number of reasons, I would say the number one reason, they just had cataract surgery, they could finally see well, they needed their uh, glasses adjusted, and they could not get in to see an optometrist. And this went on for three long months. We kept asking in the House, asking the minister, uh, why don't you sit down with them and, you know, like, and negotiate a fair deal? I'm not saying give them everything they ask for, but sit down and negotiate. And she would always answer uh, that they had uh, given them $39 million in retro pay and they were offering. I would ask the exact same questions of the optometrist. They would say, we, we had one short uh, discussion with the ministry where they came and 
offered, the $39 million retro pay and the 8.5, but there was never a negotiation that took place. There was never time allocated to them so that they can make their pitch to say um, things have changed in the last 30 years <laughs> since we last negotiated their fees, and, uh, and here's what would make more sense. So finally, after three long months, um, they have agreed to sit down, uh, talk to a mediator, and uh, find a way forward. So fingers crossed, uh, the optometrist wanted to show good faith and uh, stop their job action as of this morning. It, it was unfortunate that people in this province who are covered by OHIP, and, and we had so many people calling in to fight back, over 65s who said, listen, I'm happy to write a check for $80 to get my eyes done, or eyes checked, but they, but of course, if it's paid for by OHIP, you can't circumvent that. We had stories of people having to wait in the ER for hours on end before they could get referred to an ophthalmologist because the ophthalmologist wouldn't see them first. I mean, the people of this province in both of those demographics, they were held hostage for nearly three months. Uh, Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm not a doctor by any means, uh, but I know that for some people, they will have lifelong consequences of that. Uh, The kids who now hate schools because he can't see nothing when he's Mm -hmm. in school, and a lot of elderly people who need their eyes checked because of underlying medical issues who did not have access for all that time, uh, it, it was horrible. My conversation with NDP health critic Frost Jelena on Tuesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This past Sunday, two residents say they were bitten by a coyote at a park near Bayview and Shepherd. Paramedics were called to the scene, but none of the victims was taken to hospital. Ultimately, the coyote, believed to have been involved, was euthanized on Monday. This is just the most recent issue with coyotes in Toronto, with sightings up dramatically from last year and some of the animals showing aggressive behavior. Joining me on Tuesday to discuss, Esther Attard, Director of Toronto Animal Services, and Leslie Sampson, Executive Director of Coyote Watch Canada. There's a couple of factors, Jane, uh, with respect to those sightings. First of all, you know, we're all coming out of that COVID lull and um, many people were at home. Uh, people got more engaged on social media. So a lot of those sighting reports, I think if we look at the five-year plan in terms of coyote sightings and look back again next year and the year after, we'll see that they'll drop a little bit as well. But, you know, there it doesn't indicate that there is a a boom in coyote populations. It's reflecting that more and more people are reporting those sightings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I was actually at a friend's place, I think it would have been back in the spring, and she borders on a ravine, and a coyote actually came up to the edge of their property and then went back down into the ravine. I didn't report it, but that would be an example of, um, you know, the fact that more of us are seeing them. 
Absolutely. And you know what, Jane, the thing is, too, the sighting reports are important. It provides a, a good benchmark for where there's engagement, if there's an uptick or a trend, an increase in coyote sightings. That then allows um, city officials to do their ground investigation to see if there's attractants in there or is this just a, a typical home range for a, a coyote family. So, Esther, what is the municipality, what is Toronto doing to manage this, you know, whether it's a problem or not, certainly a challenge of urban coyotes? Um, the base of our strategy is in education, is in educating people to um, be responsible, to keep um, garbage contained, to not feed um, wildlife intentionally, um, and to know how to respond to wildlife should they come too close um, or if they come on their property, um, and to know how to do aversion techniques to make sure that they stay safe and the coyotes maintain their boundaries between us. Typically, how are they acting if, if you see them on the edge of, like my case, a ravine on a residential property. Are they keeping to themselves? Are they naturally aggressive? What is that normal habitat? Yeah, so I I think especially with the landscape that Toronto presents, it's absolutely um, amazing biodiversity and green spaces. Ravines is a normal travel corridor for a wild range of species. But what, what typically we would want residents to appreciate and recognize if a coyote is continuously visiting visiting the property you want to do that um, you know wildlife proofing inventory do you have attractants there is this coyote just there temporarily because there's construction happening within the city and so we want residents to recognize when a coyote is um, overstaying their welcome and then there's mitigative steps that can be taken, as Esther mentioned, the aversioning and also ensuring that, you know, you're not putting food out for other wildlife species because coyote will come mm-hmm. come by there to get that easy food source as well. Esther, would you like to add to that? Um, just that um, coyotes should, uh, you should be noting where coyotes are and if they are coming too close to use that aversion conditioning and not be worried about using that to make sure that they are keeping their distance from your property and you know from where you are um and again looking out for the food because that is the biggest attractant and why coyotes come so close to people Esther Attar, Director of Toronto Animal Services, and Leslie Sampson, Executive Director of Coyote Watch Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Steve from Scarborough phoned during our segment on coyote sightings. Bring me in Florida, there's a park. In the summer, I saw three coyotes during the day, and there's a playground there, okay? 
I phoned the police. They didn't care about it. I phoned 311. She put me on hold for 10 minutes. She tells me to call animal control. And they say, make noise. And they said, not, they did not care. I was blowing the horn. I was yelling. They did not care at all. But the thing is dangerous because there's a playground there with your kitties, for God's sake. Craig from Etobicoke called to say pedestrians need to be more responsible for their own safety. Enough people don't talk about pedestrian education. And back when I grew up, we used to have edu- education for pedestrians. Look both ways, cross the street safely and briskly. And I don't see enough awareness and onus on the pedestrian. We want to demonize the driver all the time. Well, drivers go through education and driving schools and everything. And I don't see pedestrians being educated. They're walking, they're texting, they're not looking, they're not scanning, they're not crossing the street properly. And I'm not saying it's all the fall of pedestrian, but I think we got to put the onus on pedestrians. Jan from Guelph called in shortly after Craig. Well, I'd just like to say thank you to the gentleman who said that uh, too much uh, pressure is put on the drivers. I'd like to see a law that comes in that you are not allowed to cross the road anywhere with a phone in your hand texting. That should not be allowed. And if you are injured or whatever, sadly, you are also phoned if you were doing that. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Steve in Barrie, who phoned to talk about Ontario's optometrists and his opinion that they are not properly funded for OHIP-covered services. I'm a senior, and I've got a cataract, and I was told even before this walkout that it was going to be a year you know, waiting to get it done. And then I've, I've had an appointment cancelled with the optometrist. I don't complain with them. My problem is how come there's been no increase since 1989 and look at all the f- governments we've had. And I just listened to the NDP critic there. Why didn't they say something when the Liberals were in charge before? This has been going on since 89. Sometimes you have to stop and say, hey, maybe we have to hold something back to get something when no one's listening to us. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.